Matthew chapter 19. Uh, we will read and hear from uh, God's Word, verse 16 through 30. Matthew 19, uh, beginning at verse 16. Listen now to God's Word. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect or mature, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they said, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Here is the main point I want us to see in this text, and it is this, the call to live in the blessing and the reward of eternal life, to live in the blessing and reward of eternal life by seeing the danger of misusing or misapplying the commandments of God and seeing the need for regeneration or transformation of the heart, inward change by the power and grace of God alone. Live in the blessing and the rewards of eternal life by seeing the danger of misusing the commandments and the necessity of inward transformation by the power and grace of God. Now, it's worth noting that throughout this episode and interchange, there are various terms and phrases used in an almost uh, synonymous way. The whole exchange between Jesus and the rich man, and then later between Jesus and the disciples, begins with this uh, mention of eternal life. But later, Jesus actually answers the question about eternal life by using a different term, treasure in heaven. Give, all, give away all you possess and you will have treasure in heaven. And then even later from there, verse 23, he mentions the entering of the kingdom of heaven. That is, eternal life 
and possessing heavenly treasure and entering the kingdom of heaven all are overlapping concepts here in this uh, dialogue and interchange. Remember, Jesus began his ministry by preaching back in chapter 4, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, in Christ, the kingdom of God, his rule and authority has been established on the earth. And this kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The nations and the kingdoms of the earth will fade away, but this is an everlasting kingdom, and those who enter this kingdom possess an eternal life, and they possess heavenly treasure. So it's an eternal kingdom. It's therefore an eternal life for those who enter it, and it is the possessing of heavenly treasure. We see these used interchangeably in a certain way. The question the man asks comes in the very first verse of what we have heard. Verse 16 says, Behold, a man came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Verse 20 tells us this is a younger man. Uh, Luke's gospel tells us he is a ruler. That is, he has rank and authority over others. And he is a wealthy ruler. Uh, We're told that he has great possessions. This is why in many of our Bibles it's entitled the story of the rich young ruler. We see all, all three of those true. And the question that he asked Jesus is one of the most important questions that someone could ask. It's a good question. And it's coming from someone sincere. John Calvin points out that this man is not like the Pharisees or the scribes trying to corner Jesus or trying to trap or test him. He's coming, weighing things out in his life. He is sincere, and he's asking an all-important question. Notice at the beginning of verse 16, it begins with, Behold. Uh, Some translations use the word, Look! Exclamation point. Behold, look. Uh, In Matthew's gospel, this is used to indicate a new moment in Jesus' ministry, a new teaching. And so Matthew is giving us a clue here. Pay attention, in other words. Look, behold, Jesus is about to teach something important and something new and significant. And I want to note also something very relevant here as we have heard a question about eternal life in light of the current uh, uh, culture at this very moment. Right now, in light of the uh, pandemic, the coronavirus, uh, all around our state, uh, all around our country, much of the world, there is this heightened emphasis upon physical life. Physical life. Not upon eternal life, but about the preservation of earthly physical life. So for days and weeks now, and I am sure it will continue, we have been given a constant news feed daily, even hourly, about the status and effect of this virus, the number of those infected in every country, every state, every county, how many deaths reported every single hour in every country, state, county, how many people hospitalized, the breakout precisely of everyone's age. And we've been given a constant guidance and the measures we should take for self-care and for the care of other people. And indeed, God values the physical and earthly life. We should do much to preserve it. We're thankful for these measures. And yet, here we hear a passage about a different life, 
an eternal life. That there is a more important life to which Jesus is drawing our attention. I think it's significant. This eternal life. And it's the eternal life in which we should be thinking about and viewing our earthly, temporary life. We need to hear the voice of Scripture. We need to hear the voice of God. This life is everlasting. This has eternal consequences. This is why Christ said back in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about your life. Isn't life more than food, clothing, drink? He's speaking about our temporary, physical, earthly life. If all of life is the 60 or 70 or 80 years that we have, then worry. Then you have need. Then you have reason to worry. But it's not. We understand this temporary life in light of the eternal life that God has given. It encompasses the here and now, but it is much greater than the here and now. Notice the man's question and how he forms it. He says, not, how is eternal life obtained? He asks, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to know what he must do. Now, that may be a reflection of Judaism in the first century in Jesus' day. Uh, This distortion of the commandments of God, a distortion and misunderstanding of the word of God, that life with God can be obtained by doing, by adherence to the commandments. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul preached and wrote against in his letter to the church in Rome, uh, to his letter to the churches in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 2, remember, Paul said, no one is justified by works of the law. No one, is, no one will be justified. No one will stand righteous before God Almighty by observing the commandments. It's, it's at the heart of the gospel. But this man, as well as many Jews in Jesus' day, had an assumption that his ultimate status and position before Almighty God is based on what he does. His focus is external. What deeds, what actions, what commands must I follow? Notice Jesus' focus is different. Jesus is going to reveal what the man values on the inside. That's where Jesus is going. What does he desire? What does he value? The man wants to know what commands he must observe. Jesus is looking to reveal what the man's heart actually values. What does he desire? What does he love? And so at the heart of this text is a question about value. What do we love? Now you may not be able to see it, but in my hand is a $20 bill. Some of us are familiar with this. Some of us have a few of these. This $20 bill has an assigned value. It's $20. It's not, it does not contain intrinsic value. All right. uh, this is not $20 worth of paper that I'm holding. It's not $20 worth of ink on this piece of paper. It is a value that we have assigned. There are fewer things that have intrinsic value. This is an assigned value. And yet, how many of these people have can determine the kind of house they buy, 
the kind of car that they drive, the kind of clothing that they wear, where they eat and what they eat. It can even determine the kind of people that one will associate with. It's an assigned value. We're all assigning value to things in the world and in life. The world is doing this all the time. That's what Jesus is wanting to reveal to this rich young ruler. That not only is he assigning value to something, but he is treasuring something. And Jesus wants to teach, as he has taught elsewhere, that whatever it is that you treasure has your heart. And whatever has your heart has control of your life. It's central to Jesus' teaching. It's what he taught back in chapter 6, verse 21. Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, how does Jesus get to this man's inside, his heart? What it is that this man treasures? It's pretty surprising. In fact, people have recognized that the way Jesus approaches this man is quite different than the way most Christians and evangelicals today would engage someone evangelistically. If someone wanted to know how to obtain and inherit eternal life, many people today would point a man and teach a person that he must repent, he must recognize his sinfulness, he must trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But notice what Jesus does in his approach. And indeed, all of that is true. You must repent, you must trust in Jesus. But notice how Jesus gets to this man in in his approach. Verse 17 He says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. Would we tell a person that? Well, you you need to seek the commandments if you want eternal life. Jesus points the man to the law, the commandments. And it's really a marvelous thing because by pointing the man to the commandments, Jesus is not only uh, heightening the significance of the commandments and therefore God's character, God's holiness, but he is also showing the danger of the commandments, the danger of misusing the commandments of God, the dangerous thinking, the false thinking that a person can obtain life with God, eternal life, through their devotion, through their obedience. So he says, keep the commandments. The man asks, which ones? And Jesus begins listing the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. He mentions the second great commandment from Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. But notice how the man responds to the commandments. This strikes at the very heart of the good news of the Christian faith. He says, all these I have kept. What? Do I still lack? Amazing. The man has been living out the commandments of God for who knows how long, and he does not understand how eternal life, how life with God forevermore is obtained. Amazing. The man may be sincere, and as I pointed out, uh, Calvin mentions that This man seems to be very sincere. He's weighing things out. But this man is spiritually blind. He is ignorant. Yes, he's a keeper of the law. 
Yes, he loves his neighbor. He looks like a believer on the outside. All these I have kept. This man could be uh, in a church today. He has the appearance of godliness. What a warning. What a caution, a reminder of what the gospel is. And to much of the world, this is what defines a Christian. It's what the man looks like, what the woman looks like from the outside. Their observance, their practices. To much of the world, this is what defines a Christian. If you look up the definition of Christian in a dictionary, the Webster's Dictionary defines a Christian this way. A Christian is a decent, civilized, or presentable person. I thought to myself, I don't even know if I fit that. (laughs) I'm not sure if I fit that category. Uh, The Oxford English Dictionary doesn't do a whole lot better. It states that a Christian is a person who has the qualities of kindness and fairness. You would hope. Uh, But there is a warning here. A person can have a strong commitment to outward observance, worship, love of neighbor, honesty, integrity, kindness, and yet on the inside, they're empty. In fact, on the inside, they're missing the one essential thing. What does the man say? All these I have kept, what do I still lack? The man knows something is missing. Even though he has been religiously devoted, he has sought out the commandments of God, he's lacking. It's like water poured into a pitcher full of holes. The container cannot hold the water. It's emptying out. It's emptying out. It's never full. It will never be able to overflow. This man, he has poured out his life in many ways, in religious devotion, but it it cannot hold the water. It's empty, which means a person can have fervency in keeping God's commands and still be lacking. I think there is a great caution and warning. One must not think that their own devotion, their own commandment keeping will fill their life. That is dangerous. That's not the gospel. The gospel, the good news is not keep the commandments and you will have abundant life. The good news is that one has kept the commandments and it is in him as we unite ourselves to him and he unites himself to us that we have everlasting life, abundant life. He he is the one who has lived the life for us, uh, died upon the cross to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. That is where my security and my confidence and my joy and my peace ought to come. That's the foundation. It's not through obedience to the law that I obtain life with God. My obedience is an overflow or response to the grace of God in my life. In Mark's account, Jesus says to the man, one thing you lack. In Matthew's account, the man himself says, what do I still lack? In Mark's gospel, the man says, or Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. 
What is the one thing this man lacks? The grammar of, of Mark's account in Mark 10, verse 21, is important. This one thing you lack. Jesus is not saying, you, you've got everything, you just need to add one more thing. Now, that may be what the man is thinking. I've done all these things. What's the one thing I'm missing? I just need to add that on to the rest of my life. Rather, Jesus is saying, in this one thing, which is like nothing else, you are empty. You lack. This is not doing one more thing. This is the one vital, essential thing without which there is no life. There's no true abundant life. There's no eternal life. And I think it's a new heart, inward change, regeneration. I think it is a new and a true love for God. The man needs a new heart. We see the place of love for God or a heart for God throughout the Old and New Testament. Proverbs 23, my son, give me your heart. Psalm 51, in David's words, you will not delight in sacrifice, Lord, or I would give it. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This man needs a heart of contrition. Uh, Ezekiel 37, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He needs a new heart. In Scripture, the heart is like the rudder of a person's life. It directs your aim. It directs your mind. It directs your passion. The heart is like the engine behind what you love. What this man lacks is love for God, love for Christ. There's no coincidence that later in chapter 22 of Matthew, when Jesus is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? He gives the first and great commandment and the second like it, and both of them at the heart have love. In Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God. This affection, this comes from God himself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the question is, what has the value worthy of my heart, worthy of my love and affection. Everyone has treasure. Uh, Whatever you treasure has your heart. Whatever has your heart has your life. And Jesus is revealing to this man what he treasures, therefore what has his heart, therefore what's directing his life. What do I still lack? Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go sell all that you possess, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And we're told that the man, when he heard this, went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus has uncovered what this man treasures. His problem is not wealth. It's not that he has riches. Solomon had great wealth. Joseph of Arimathea had wealth. Believers throughout the scripture had great wealth. His problem is that his wealth has his heart, his devotion. 
his loyalty. It's really what is serving as his God. Martin Luther, the reformer, put it this way, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. In more contemporary language, Tim Keller says this, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness and meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. Indeed, anything can serve as a person's God or treasure. There are many things in the world among the non-believers that are really preventing them, that they are serving, that is the barrier to life with God. Appearance, intellect, power, romance, physical safety, family, accomplishments, even the good and valuable things, gifts from God can become gods themselves. Jesus makes it clear when one's life, when their identity and their security, uh, their worth is defined by some other God, especially money, especially money, with all that money can do and, and purchase and create a sense of more time and space and support and security, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, verse 24, than for that man to enter Christ's kingdom. Now, I don't know what the odds are of a camel getting through the eye of a needle, but it's not good. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a poem about this. He said, all things, even a camel's journey through a needle's eye, are possible. It's true. But picture how the camel feels, squeezed out in one long bloody thread from tail to snout. Uh, That's the truth. If one is going to come to Christ, have life with the Lord Jesus, to live with him in his kingdom, there is no room for another God. What's amazing here is that not only does the love of this idol cause this rich man to walk away from the Lord Jesus, he walks away from the offer of everlasting life, from the possibility of everlasting life. But Jesus, in Mark's gospel, in fact, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He loved this man. Jesus permits him to walk away. He allows the man to pursue this other God, to live for it. Entering the kingdom of Christ is so impossible, it takes nothing less than a supernatural, miraculous work of God. Jesus says in verse 26, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. There's no human will, no kindness, no love of man, no obedience to the commands. None of that will bring a man into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is the powerful, supernatural work of God to give a person a new heart. And yet Jesus opens the door. Give up your possession. Give up your money. Give up your pride. Give up whatever God maybe preventing you from coming to the Lord Jesus, and come, follow me. This is a man who has not come to Christ. Those of us who are in Jesus Christ, we have idols that surface, things that we are tempted to cling to, to find our security and our identity and worth in. We, we feel that at times. 
Um, our hearts do wander. We wander from the Lord at times. But God, God has our heart. If He has regenerated us, if you've come to faith in Christ, He has your heart. And He wants us to crucify those things, put those things to death. Because it is worth it. It's worth it. Peter says in verse 27, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you in the new world, you'll sit on thrones. Indeed, all who have left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I think about the, the cost and the extent to which people, uh, the government, towns, nation states are going as a result of this pandemic. Think of the cost people have made to protect and to preserve physical life at this time. Rightly so. Understandably so. How much more, how much more should we give up in order to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, to have eternal life. It is worth it. The rewards are great. We will be singing, Be Thou My Vision. We hear these words from the hymn. Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence my light. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befalls, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Let's pray together. O gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, that in him we have life everlasting, and that we can see through that very lens, that we can understand this temporary physical life in in light of uh, the good news of life everlasting. We thank you for your kingdom that has no end. And Lord, how we praise you for uh, performing that supernatural work in the lives of your people to replace hearts of stones with hearts of flesh, to love you with all that we are. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with overflowing of thanksgiving and gratitude, of worship, of doxology for your goodness. We pray, O Lord, that love for you would be above all things. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us spiritually, that that we would not lose heart or, or that we would not be weakened in faith in the light of our own sin, but Lord, that we would continue to crucify those things, those idols, and delight in your goodness. Delight in you above all things. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bind your people together with one heart, one mind, as we are in separate places, we pray. Help us to set time aside to look to you in prayer, to fulfill the calling you've placed upon our lives. Knit us together, O God, in this time, and strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.